is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Colorado Day, August 1st, 2020, our state's 144th birthday. Boy, do we have some problems. COVID plus racial issues sparked by our divider-in-chief. Isn't he something? Look, I've been dealing with these issues for a long, long time. When I was an adolescent in the early 70s, I wrote this bit of verse sitting in a Denver public school. Civil rights has lost its spark. Those summer nights were hot. Summer sure the problem's gone. Excuse me if I'm not. I worried that we were going to have future issues around race relations, but I never anticipated a guy like Donald Trump would ever be president and deliberately divide us deliberately throw fuel on the fire. You know, one thing that is not complex as we talk about various race relation issues like reparations or this or that, how about the right to vote? Can we agree people should have the right to vote? One adult, one vote. If you are not incarcerated, we've got a vote coming up and our divider in chief is at work on that. And he's trying to corrupt the process, a process we've long used in Colorado without any difficulty. John Lewis died, and he was the subject of so many tributes this past week, including his remarkable funeral, the eulogy delivered by Barack Obama. I'll play that later. But John Lewis was an American hero, and he had to battle bigots like Bull Connor and George Wallace. And Barack Obama brought up the bully-in-chief that we need to battle today. I got to thinking about Selma, and I knew about a great rabbi who was linked up in the front row of that historic march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. His name was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he is legendary. He also led the opposition to the Vietnam War. And most would agree that was a terrible moment for America as well, a war that had no legitimacy, and so many people died really for no reason. Selma, the right to vote, who could argue about that? Only the worst bigots could try to deprive people of the right to vote. I wanted to know more about Rabbi Heschel, and darned if I didn't find out he had one child. And she's a professor at Dartmouth College. And I got in touch with her, and this bit of magic happened. I give you Professor Susanna Heschel. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. What a great opportunity to speak with the daughter of a legendary person in American history. Her name is Susanna Heschel. She's a professor at Dartmouth. And her father was the great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, a confidant and contemporary of Martin Luther King. 
he was a little older. What a history he had. Professor Heschel, welcome to my show. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Thank you. It's good to speak to you. Tell everybody what you do for a living. I'm a professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. I'm in the Department of Religion, and I also chair the Jewish Studies program at Dartmouth. How long have you been an Ivy League professor? (laughs) Over 20 years, actually. And I teach courses on modern Jewish history and Jewish thought. And my research spans German Jewish history, 19th and 20th century. And also, I've written about my father, about his relationship with Dr. King and also with Reinhold Niebuhr. I've written about the history of biblical scholarship, and I wrote one book about Nazi anti-Semitism. Wow. What credentials about your father on a week that has seen the passing of John Lewis, who was on that march in Selma? Tell everybody about your father, the legendary Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Thank you. So my father was born in Warsaw in 1907 to a Hasidic family, a very religious, pious family. He said that he grew up surrounded by people of religious nobility. And then when he became a teenager, he was considered a genius as a young man. He was already ordained an Orthodox rabbi, and he decided to study at the University of Berlin. He went there in 1927 and he wrote a Ph.D. dissertation about the Hebrew prophets. Then Hitler came to power. My father tried very hard to escape, to get a position to teach at another institution outside Germany. But finally, the the Nazis arrested him and deported him in October of 1938. At the last minute, just a few weeks before World War II started, my father was rescued by the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, It's a reform rabbinical college that brought my father out of Europe and to the United States. He became a professor here in the U.S., first in Cincinnati for five years, and then in New York City, where he taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And he published many books on Jewish theology, on prayer, of course, on the prophets, and also he wrote in four different languages, in German, English, Hebrew, and Yiddish. He wrote on Hasidism, on medieval Jewish philosophy, on medieval Jewish mysticism, on rabbinic theology, and on modern Jewish thought. So he was a very productive, energetic person. Oh my gosh, what a genius to be able to write in all those languages. And I just have to tell you, I'm speaking to the daughter of the most renowned rabbi of modern times and an American civil rights hero. Keep going. So in 1963, my father was invited to give one of the keynote lectures at a conference in Chicago on religion and race. And that's where he met Dr. King, who also gave a keynote lecture. And they somehow bonded right away. They became good friends and gave lectures together at Jewish organizations and colleges and so forth in the United States. My father was also active in the effort to stop the war in Vietnam, and he and Dr. King talked about that as well. Um, In 1965, my father was asked by Dr. King to come to Selma to join the march, the Selma to Montgomery march, and so my father was there in the front line of marchers with Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy and John Lewis and Ralph Bunch, 
and so many other wonderful people. Wow. And and tell everybody how many children your father had. Oh, my father only had one child. Me. I'm the only child. My mother was a pianist. And yes, and here I am. Right. How old were you when all of these famous events were occurring? Your father going around the country with Martin Luther King Jr. Well, I was I was just a child, but I remember it vividly. It was very important in my home. My parents talked about this with their friends. My father gave me the feeling that what he was doing, what Dr. King was doing and what my father was doing by supporting him was the moral thing to do. It was the prophetic thing to do. So when my father left home to fly to Selma, I remember vividly that he kissed me goodbye, and I I treasured that moment. I focused on it because I thought he may never come back, and I wanted to remember that kiss. And at the same time, I knew from him that this was the most important thing a person could be doing at that moment. So I admired and respected and revered my father very much. Did Martin Luther King talk to your father about his Holocaust experience? I imagine that he did. You know, my father didn't like to talk about it very much because it upset him so much. It was very emotional that his mother was murdered. His sisters, three of his sisters were murdered. His whole extended family and so many friends and colleagues, the whole world was destroyed. And when my father talked to me, about that, it was terribly painful for him. So he didn't talk very often, but he, you know, my father felt that going to Selma and marching for civil rights was a religious act. And when he came back, he said, I felt my legs were praying. I think that's important too, that for my father to pray also means to do good for other human beings. Your father, one of the most renowned clergymen of all time, interacting with Martin Luther King Jr., similarly situated, an incredible Christian preacher. Did they bond over religion? Did they have common perspectives on that? Yes, they did. They had common understandings of theology and of the Hebrew Bible. You know, I want to just say that this is really something quite extraordinary in world history, that Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement made the Hebrew prophets the central figures of the movement, Moses, Amos, Isaiah. These were figures from the Hebrew Bible. And that also was a gesture of welcoming people, welcoming Jews to join. This wasn't an exclusively Christian movement. I think the civil rights movement was also an ecumenical movement. And that meant a lot to my father. And you know, my father came from Nazi Germany. And in Nazi Germany, there were Christians who said that the Old Testament was a Jewish book, and a Nazi should not have a Jewish book in the Bible. So they they threw it out of the Bible. They printed just the New Testament. And even in the New Testament, they changed the words. They made a revised, de-Judaized New Testament and said that Jesus was an Aryan, a German. It's quite extraordinary. So you can imagine for my father to come to the United States and see the prophets become the central figures of the civil rights movement, invoke 
that's extraordinary for my father. And it carried on just this week, John Lewis' funeral, President Barack Obama during the main eulogy referenced John Lewis and Martin Luther King standing up to authority, just like the Old Testament prophets speaking truth to the kings in the Old Testament. That's extraordinary, and that flows right through your father and Martin Luther King Jr., does it not? Yes, it does. And I think it is quite extraordinary. And I want to just say something about both John Lewis and Reverend C.D. Vivian, because I knew them in the 60s and, and I knew them through the years. I first want to say Reverend C.T. Vivian was an extremely gentle person. He was always with Dr. King in a very quiet, soft-spoken way, sort of in the shadows, but just there to be helpful. He was kind. He was kind. He was gentle. And, you know, I had the feeling with Reverend Vivian, when I was with him, I had the feeling I was in the presence of a holy person. I can't put that really into any other words, but there was something holy about him. His gentleness, his refinement, his kindness. And I knew John Lewis also, and I have to tell you, he was the most unpretentious person you can imagine. He was so friendly to everybody and kind and just happy to, to shake your hand or take a picture, talk to you, anything. He was just a very down-to-earth, lovely human being, and always with a smile on his face. And I have to say that's pretty remarkable for someone to get beaten so many times and imprisoned. And his his skull was fractured on the bridge in Selma, and he was doing what was absolutely legal, walking across a bridge, making a civil rights demonstration for rights that are his. And this is the United States. This is a democracy. We are permitted to demonstrate and to express our views. This is not Soviet Union, some totalitarian regime. And so that's what he was doing, and he was beaten for it. But you know what's important for me is that he he got up from that experience, and he wasn't angry. He wasn't resentful. He wanted to do good in the world. He he ran for Congress, and in the Congress, he did good, and he looked for allies. He was a good friend of the Jewish people, John Lewis, and we honored him, too. He was given the Elie Wiesel Medal by the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington a couple of years ago. He was an extraordinary human being, and I think it's an important lesson for all of us to get up from terrible things that happen in everyone's life, to get up from our sorrow and do good to other people to try to have the kind of dignity that he showed and the kindness and the lack of pretension, the friendliness, the sweetness. It was just the kind of person you just had. I had the feeling that John Lewis as a child was well-loved by his parents. There was something about him with his smile. You could just see that his parents thought he was adorable when he was a little boy. That was the feeling I had around him, just so much warmth. What a great discussion. You have such perspective, uh, Professor Heschel. Let me ask you, did you ever get an opportunity to speak with C.T. Vivian or John Lewis about your father and their relationship with your father, the Rabbi Heschel? Yes, I did. And you know, it's really remarkable. Reverend Vivian loved my father. 
and told me that he told me, and also Andrew Young told me that when they were arrested and they went to jail, they would have a copy of my father's book on the prophets in the hip pocket of their pants, and they would sit in jail and read from it and feel inspired. And I thought that was great. But I also want to say that what impresses me is the gratitude that they always expressed. Reverend Vivian, Andrew Young, all of the people from the civil rights era to this day tell me how grateful they are to my father for what he did joining them, what, 50, 60 years ago. Imagine showing gratitude for something that happened 60 years ago. Isn't that an important lesson for all of us? I just think to myself, do I show gratitude for something that happened a week ago, let alone 60 years ago? Do you still show gratitude? And that's, that's important for me to keep in mind, the gratitude that we all should be expressing for one another. Wow. Barack Obama spoke of John Lewis as one of our founding fathers. Certainly MLK is revered in American history. And your father, a close friend and associate of Martin Luther King Jr. Did you interact with Martin Luther King Jr.? What is your memory of that? And what was MLK's relationship with the Jewish people? Oh, yes. So I did meet Dr. King on several occasions when he was with my father. And he was always very, very warm and kind to me. And I actually, uh, I have to tell you, there were times when at the end of an evening of lectures, he was there with my father and my father would bring me over to Dr. King. Dr. King was so nice to me. I was just a little kid. I was nobody, but he was kind to me and asked me, how are you, and talked to me. And I remember once my father said, do you remember Susie? And Dr. King said, of course I remember Susie. Now, I can't imagine he would remember me. I was nobody. But he said that to be to be kind, to give me a little something. And I I keep that in mind, too, when I meet people. Sometimes if I'm tired or grumpy or whatever, I remember, you know, Dr. King must have been exhausted, but he still was willing to give me his warmth and a smile at that moment. And I should do that, too. So these were people who were really fine human beings and grateful to have known them. We've all seen the charisma and his oratorical skills, but your father was no slouch. Tell us about your father, his speaking style, and whether he had that same kind of charisma. Well, my father was a very inspiring person, and he was able to speak about religious experience in language that is unusual, because I think sometimes we feel we have a religious moment, and it's hard for us to put it into words. But somehow my father managed to find the right words, and that, I think, is really quite extraordinary. So one of the things that my father, I think, was, was able to do and what meant a lot to him was that he could inspire people of different faiths, and I think that made him very happy. He also respected people who were able to help Jews be better Jews or Christians to be better Christians. 
And <sighs> there's so many people to this day who write to me and say, because of your father, I feel I am a better Christian. And that's pretty remarkable. So my father, for example, writes that I pray because I am unable to pray. There's so many times when we're supposed to pray or we want to pray, and that moment doesn't come to us. And he's able to show us what to do, how to, in fact, enter into ourselves and to understand that prayer comes also to disturb us, to unsettle us. My father said we shouldn't walk out of the synagogue and feel good about ourselves. You know, I'm such a good person, I went to the synagogue today. On the contrary, he said, when we leave the synagogue, we should feel unsettled. We should ask ourselves, am I really living up to the words that I've just prayed? Am I really such a good person? How can I be inspired to be a better human being? Tragically, your father did not live to a ripe old age like John Lewis, who passed away at 80. I wish he could have gone on longer. But your father, gone at age 65, passed away December 23, 1972. But he was around to see the 60s and almost the end of the Vietnam War. I think most people are familiar with the fact that Martin Luther King Jr., ended up being an outspoken opponent of our involvement in Vietnam, but it really came through your father. Tell everybody about that and why your father took on that cause. Well, my father was not a pacifist, but my father felt that the war in Vietnam was not achieving American political or military goals that we were bogged down in a war with an enemy that was in hiding here and there, and our methods militarily were simply to destroy everything. So we were engaged in what what is called a war crime, that is dropping napalm on children, destroying villages, burning up rice fields, making people completely impoverished. And this was not going to turn communists to be supporters of the United States and democracy. It was not the right strategy. And when my father learned about all of the war crimes that we were committing, he became terribly upset. And I, I know that part of it was simply what he had in his own lifetime witnessed of what happened during World War II. We, we don't kill civilians in battle. We should not do that. It's wrong. It's a war crime. So he opposed the war. And Dr. King finally, Dr. King actually was terribly concerned about the war in Vietnam, but was also afraid that speaking out against the war would alienate the president and the Congress and endanger the civil rights movement. But when he finally did speak out against the war, and that was in April 1967, Riverside Church, it was under the auspices of a religious organization that my father had founded called Clergy and Laymen Concerned About Vietnam. That was a remarkable organization. And there was Dr. King. He spoke out against the war. And the next day, he was attacked in all the newspapers. I remember those discussions because I have to say that political issues 
in my family were presented not as as a question of politics, but as a question of ethics. What was the ethical thing to do regarding the war? Should one criticize the president? My father said, well, if Abraham can criticize God over God's plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, then we have the right to criticize the president and challenge him and say this is not the right thing to do. So um, when I was growing up, these were, these were the conversations at the dinner table. I'm sure you called your father dad or some Abba in Hebrew. I'm not sure, but what did his friends call him? Well, you know, his friends called him by his last name because that's how it was done in Europe in those days with men. Men called each other by their last name. So they just called him, hey, Heschel, or called him Heshi or something like that? Students called him Professor Heschel, and this was, my father was a very formal person, he wore a suit and tie every day to go to his study and sit in his room by himself and and read and write, but with a suit. It was just either a, he, he would have a blue suit or gray suit. What about MLK? What did your father call him? Martin? I think actually addressed each other more formally, Dr. King and, and Rabbi Heschel. Who was his best friend amongst the people who were at the forefront of the civil rights movement? Oh, well, of course, Dr. King. And then there was Clarence Jones, Dr. King's personal attorney. And Andrew Young certainly was. (laughs) Andrew Young was the mother hen at at Selma. I I know I, I asked my father about that. You know, what would you do if you needed a drink of water? This is the kind of thing a child asks and he's Andrew Young had everything. You know, he, he took care of everything, took care of everyone. You, you told us about the kiss from your father. You weren't sure if he was ever going to come back. It must have been joyous when he returned. Tell us about that and what he told you about the experience. Well, he came back with the someone from Hawaii who came to Selma, brought a flower lei for some of the marchers, and my father brought his lei home for me. Uh, which was great. He told me that, because my father had a beard, a little boy asked him, are you Santa Claus? And <laughs> my father thought that was very sweet. But, you know, most important was that he said that it felt like a religious occasion, my father said, and he said, I felt my legs were praying. My father felt very strongly that to be a religious person means not to be indifferent to other people's suffering never to be indifferent to other people's suffering. He said the opposite of good is not evil. The opposite of good is indifference. Wow. And this was very important. He said, you know, in a free society like the United States, some are guilty, but everyone is responsible. Was he frightened? Did he get assaulted? Did he tell you about John Lewis getting his skull fractured? Of course we knew about that. Yes, and that's why I was frightened that he was going there. We had a television, black and white television in those days, and we watched what was going on in Birmingham, for example, and then and in Selma, of course. And it was terrible. It was horrifying to think that this was happening right there. And on the other hand, it's good that we knew. It was good that we had a television, all of us in America, to see what was going on to be aware of it, 
we couldn't ignore it. That was horrible. Bull Connors or Sheriff Jim Clark in, in Selma beating people. Terrible. Don't do that. And I see it going on today. Violence is unacceptable, period. And uh, and it should not come from the demonstrators, and it should not come from the police. It's just wrong. Did your father choose sides politically? Was he a Democrat or a Republican? My father was a Democrat. And I, I can tell you that he was a very gentle person. I think that for him to learn, for example, what happened to Eric Garner, what happened to George Floyd, to be murdered like that, and with other police standing right there and not intervening, I I, I think my father would have had a heart attack. I think we right. all are, are horrified. This is horrible. We are horrified. I'm horrified. Sounds like you're horrified. Your father would have been, same with MLK and the late John Lewis. Barack Obama, speaking at John Lewis' funeral, referenced Bull Connor and George Wallace and how people are getting beat. Peaceful protesters are being attacked by federal troops. What do you make of this, Professor Heschel? What do you make of it? I think that... According to our Constitution, it's permissible for us to demonstrate. The demonstration should be peaceful. But to demonstrate in itself is in no way a crime. It's guaranteed by the Constitution. That's the whole point of the United States, that we can demonstrate, we can write, we can speak freely our opinions, period. Now, violence is something else, and that is unacceptable. But part of the problem today is also that people stimulate violence. They stimulate it by threatening, through using threatening words, vulgar language, hateful speech, symbols. How can it be? This country fought a terrible war, World War II, against the Nazis. So how can somebody American walk into a Walmart wearing a swastika on their face? Our soldiers, our American soldiers died fighting fascism, fighting Nazism. This is, this is terrible. So uh, this kind of provocation is unacceptable. But at the same time, I have to say, police need to learn self-control. I know that in some cases they get very angry. I understand that. And I have, a, I have friends and even a cousin who are chaplains to the police. And I know they get overwhelmed sometimes. It's a very difficult job to keep the peace, keep the peace in the community, to keep the peace at a demonstration, and to keep peace within oneself, not to get upset, not to get angry, but to always be professional, a professional. And that's what we need to restore. I think back to when your father was at the University of Berlin in the 1920s. My goodness, what was going on then? I don't know if your father spoke about it, but are we seeing something similar on the streets today? So-called communists or socialists on the left, and then some people who urge 
that they need to be dominated and the strong man needs to put them down. Are there echoes of the 20s in Germany going on now in the 20s in America? Yes, I think so. And I have to say that friends of mine who are very distinguished historians of Nazi Germany see the parallels, and I'm convinced by them, and it worries me terribly. In my own opinion, there is a kind of radicalism that can exist among left-wing people and right-wing people, and sometimes they seem to me to be interchangeable. So to be a radical, it, it almost they, they sound like the same thing sometimes, and they behave in a similar way. So I, I, I do believe, though, that the United States is founded on certain very important principles. We are a, a shining light to the world with our Constitution written in the 18th century, and we need to abide by it. I know you're an expert on the relationship between Judaism and Islam, history, etc. During my lifetime, a guy named Louis Farrakhan, and I'd be interested if you regard him as a true Muslim or not, but he's come along and posed a threat to the Jewish people with his rhetoric, and he got together a million-man march, which was really quite something. But you know who refused to participate? the late Representative John Lewis, right. Tell everybody about that and your thoughts regarding that decision and Lewis Farrakhan. I will let me just say that uh, my expertise is actually a little bit different. I've worked on the 19th century and Jewish scholars who wrote on the Quran in the 19th century. So it's not so much Jewish-Muslim relations or the contemporary world. It's, I don't want to overrepresent my expertise. Uh, I, I I don't understand Louis Farrakhan. I don't know why he does this. I think he manages somehow to get a lot of attention with his horrible rhetoric, and that's very unfortunate. My own feeling is that we should not pay attention to him. We shouldn't give him this kind of attention. Right. But what do we do to people who link up with him and say, I approve of Louis Farrakhan, and I don't mind the association. H how do we deal with those sorts of situations? That's a big question and an important one, and a lot of people work on that. Uh, what does one do to defeat a, a demagogue, which is what he is? How does one deal with that? I don't think anyone has the answer, frankly. I haven't seen it, and I have, and there are big organizations like the Anti-Defamation League that have a lot of people working there and a big budget, and they haven't been able to stop him from influencing people, from talking in his diatribe. So I don't know, honestly, um, what one can do. I just think we should perhaps try to ignore him try to talk to people who listen to him. I, I'm not sure, honestly. I wish I had the answer. It's a very important question because there are a lot of demagogues out there. I agree. Would you agree that you are an expert on the Jewish people and anti-Semitism? Yes, I'm well, one of many. <laughs> right. Is anti-Semitism getting better or worse in the world? And then let's boil it down to America as well. Anti-Semitism is getting worse everywhere in the world, including the United States, and it's horrifying. What do you attribute that to? 
I'm not entirely sure. I think that there isn't a single factor. There are many factors. And I think it will take historians in the future a lot of hard work to try to figure out what actually happened. It's difficult when we're in the middle of a phenomenon to understand the roots of it. But what we see is an anti-Semitism among right-wing people, left-wing people. What's interesting, though, is that we have allies. For example, we have allies among Christians. The Catholic Church issued an important declaration. In fact, my father was involved with that. It's called Nostra Aetate. It came from the Second Vatican Council, and it condemns anti-Semitism. And the Catholic Church has really been at the forefront of fostering good relations with with Jews and, and understanding Judaism. And the, from the popes, who have been very concerned about better relations between Catholics and Jews, to religion school teachers. And I can tell you, I see it from my own students who have gone to Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade, and they have very good feelings about Judaism and Jews, and they know something, too, because it's part of the curriculum. So I think that's remarkable. And the same is true of many other churches as well, mainly what are called mainline Protestant churches, but also small Bible churches. There's an admiration for the Hebrew Bible among Christians in America, for instance, that you don't find among Christians in Europe. And there's an emphasis on opposing anti-Semitism and opposing racism. And one of the things that I found, in fact, based on my own experience as a visiting professor in Germany, is that in America, we think about anti-Semitism and we think about racism. We think about discrimination against disabled people. And we think about sexism and homophobia and Islamophobia. All of these are many, many, many different issues in America. And we think about so many of them, and it gives us a kind of sophistication that allows us to understand, to recognize when something is unfair, when something is discriminatory. We see it more readily, I found, than students in Germany, for instance, who would say to me, how will we know if something's anti-Semitic if you're not here to, to tell us? And I thought, you know, you have... Of course you should be able to tell on your own and understand. It was odd for me, but I realized that they don't have that kind of experience that students in the United States have. And they'll recognize, very many students here will recognize very quickly when something is a racist idea or an anti-Semitic idea. When we think about many different kinds of people, we, we start to understand when something, when something is said that is unfair that is denigrating, that is mocking. We, we, we understand that. We have a, a way of recognizing. And I think that is something very special about the United States. You went to a special place that I love, Colorado College in Colorado Springs, my alma mater. You, you got an honorary degree there. Did you spend some time in our state of Colorado? Yes. I did, and I had a wonderful experience at Colorado College. I gave the baccalaureate address. I enjoyed it very much. It's a fantastic college, and it's a brilliant plan that they have there. Every college I know of is right now trying to imitate Colorado College with the special three-week 
you know, three studies. The block plan, the legendary block plan that they had in effect when I went there. And it's so cool to think that you have a degree from there as well. But you have a lot of honorary degrees. You have honored us with your presence here. There are schools named after your father all over the world. Tell people about that. Oh, well, yes. It started in Los Angeles. There's an Abraham Joshua Heschel School in Northridge, California, outside L.A. in a suburb, and one in New York City and in Canada, Ohio. So, yes, it's quite wonderful. And I'm very happy. And my father's books have been translated into languages around the world. In fact, something amazing is that one of my father's books was translated by a professor in Pakistan, translated into Urdu. He's a professor of Islamic theology in Islamabad, and he translated one of my father's books. And there's somebody in California who wants to translate a book into Persian so that it can be read by people in Iran. And his books have been translated into Japanese and Korean and, of course, all the European languages, even Portuguese and Spanish and German and French and Dutch. It's really quite remarkable. And it makes me very happy. And I know my father would be very moved. And I think it's remarkable for a Jewish theologian to inspire people in so many different parts of the world from so many different faiths to be a better Christian, better Muslim, better Jew. I think that's great. Your father, the late Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, was so prolific as an author. If there was one book that you would recommend we read by your father, which one would it be? Well, I would say to start, I would read The Sabbath. It's it's a small book, and it opens up a whole new world for people of what it means to make time holy. How can you take a day in the week and turn it into holy time? That was a very important book to my father. It's one of the first books that he wrote after he came to the United States. He wrote it in English just after learning English, and it's a very beautiful, beautiful book. So that's the one I would recommend. And then after that, as we become advanced Heschel scholars? Well, I think either The Prophets, which is really a passionate, wonderful book, or I would read God in Search of Man, which is my father's theology of Judaism. And both books talk about God as being in need of human beings, that we are an object of divine concern, and that life is a mandate. We have to do something with our life. My father said, you should try to turn your life into a work of art. And I think that's very beautiful. What a beautiful concept. Your father was so sensational. If I refer to your father as the most accomplished rabbi in modern history, would you dispute that? I would not dispute it. I think it's true. (laughs) It's such an honor to speak to his only child. I, I can't thank you enough, Professor. My pleasure. It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me to be on your program. You're very welcome. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. 
My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a day, what a life. One of the things I love about putting on a weekly show is developing the concept and the theme. The last show, I was thinking about Michelle Malkin ever since she was part of that rally in Civic Center Park, the one in which she almost got hurt and in which she thanked her Groyper friends. I brought out her affiliation with some radical, alt-right, Jew-hating, bigoted groups. I don't like it. I don't think other people should like it. I asked her on, and she said yes, which was great, because I'm not into cancel culture. I'm into confronting people, and confront her, I did. Before I got to her, though, she was confronted on the pages of the Denver Post by my next guest, Andrew Stretman. And wait till you hear what he has to say. And now we are forever linked because Michelle Malkin saw fit to fire back at us. And she proved a few things about racists. First of all, they're not that smart. Second of all, they like to judge people by immutable characteristics. Look at Donald Trump and the way he judges people on their appearance. He's been known to remark on the beautiful figures of women or the lack thereof. If a guy's short and fat, he's going to call that out. He makes fun of people in every way imaginable, even if they're just sporting the equipment God gave to them. I've been blessed in a lot of ways in my life, including having this distinctive voice. I know not everybody likes it. I'm not sure I do. But Michelle Malkin, in her critique of me, just belittled me and my speaking ability, which has served me well as an accomplished Colorado attorney. And she seems unaware of that, but that's okay. I'm aware of her. She belittled Andrew Stretman for his physical appearance, which I thought was fine, but 
She put his face on YouTube and made fun of it. That's the kind of person Michelle Malkin is. That's the kind of person Donald Trump is. When he did that imitation of the New York Times reporter, Serge Kovaleski, remember that, making fun of a guy who had a disability, something the guy didn't want to have, but he did. And for Donald Trump and for the Michelle Malkins of the world, it's an object of ridicule. No wonder they have zero problem discriminating on the basis of an immutable characteristic such as skin color or gender preference, those sorts of things. What bigots they are when it comes to that. And this bigotry is a big problem. Andrew Strutman comes at it from a different perspective than I do here on my island of independence. He's a Republican. He's going to vote for Cory Gardner because He's GOP through and through. Listen to Andrew Stretman and his evaluation of Michelle Malkin. Andrew Stretman, S-T-R-U-T-T-M-A-N-N. I'm going to assume you are of German heritage. Am I right? Uh, that is that is correct. My folks came over in the 1840s from Germany and have, have kept the, the two ends of surname, at least my wing of the family has. Everyone misspells it, so I, I don't... I don't expect folks to, because it's not exactly the most common way in the world to spell man. Well, we will make that common here. Yes, I have a man at the end of my name, but only with one N. And I have to ask myself, why don't they spell German, G-E-R-M-A-N-N? But they don't. So some people in your family have shortened it, but you have not. You must love your parents dearly. I know you grew up in Dixon, Illinois, home of Ronald Reagan. You made your way to Colorado. Tell everybody where you went to high school in Colorado Springs. I graduated high school in Evangelical Christian Christian Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is a, a private school associated with the Presbyterian Church in America. And I've been a product of private and Christian education my entire life. And do you consider DU a religious school? Wasn't that founded by Methodists? And it was. I could. I certainly consider it a, a private school. And my secondary education, as you mentioned, was at the University of Denver. After graduating DU, I decided to stick around in Colorado. And while I worked in a few other states for a little bit, like Louisiana and New Mexico, I've spent almost all of my time in Colorado and my entire adult political life and career uh, working in Colorado politics. Right. Colorado Republican politics, I think. That is when I met you. Weren't you working for Scott Gessler at one point and at another point for Cory Gardner? Right. So I, I worked uh, with Scott Gessler on his gubernatorial race in 2013 and 2014, went over to Cory Gardner's team and senior field staff at the close of that gubernatorial primary and was thankful to be a part of a big victory for the Republicans in 2014 with now Senator Gardner. I've since worked for oil and gas industry and oil and gas interests, uh, defending them against all comers and working with it over 30 different Republican campaigns throughout my career from the, the federal level all the way down to Little Timness in, in northern Colorado and really have a passion for Republican politics and advancing Republican values as I see them. Right. But I have taken notice of you because you are a political scientist and you've studied your side of the aisle. I'm sure you've studied Democrats, too. 
but you have a particular sub-interest. Tell everybody about that, Andrew. My my interest within the, within the political right, I think a lot of other conservatives have written great things about the other side and, and about Democratic and left-of-center politics. What there really hasn't been is a conservative focus on really the racialist fringe that is consistently trying to gain entry into the mainstream of Republican politics and has done so for the past 40 years. Uh, I developed an interest in what is now called the alt-right a little bit before the term was even coined by Dickie Spencer in his blog in, in 2010. And I've been someone who's followed this political movement through its various iterations, moving up, of course, to the, the tragedy in Charlottesville and beyond as this political popular front on the racist right. And uh, it's something that I think needs to be talked about by conservatives so that we can speak to it and about it with moral clarity and deny entry into the conservative movement. Wow, that goes back. It sounds like uh, William F. Buckley battling Robert Walsh and the John Birch Society. Have you studied that? How did you come to have this as a passion of your own? Sure, sure. I think that where it became a passion of mine is was early in college and did a lot of reading on the conservative side of the aisle and picked up one of Patrick Buchanan's books and was reading it one day waiting for a, a play to start that a friend was in and got about halfway through and realized, well, I know that I'm a conservative, but I'm not this kind of conservative. It was a, a bit of a road to Damascus moment in terms of the uh, the cleavages of it within the within the conservative right and really paleoconservative and, and paleolibertarian impulses that that Patrick Buchanan is is really the the modern founder of and and from that I developed an interest in in the groups at large and what they are like what their ideologies are where they splinter and most importantly where they try to impact the conservative movement. With Buckley, I, I found great inspiration just in, as you mentioned, in the 60s, pushing the birthers out of the movement at a time where National Review was a flagship of, of a very nascent conservative movement, and there needed to be uh, moral stands taken in terms of what conservatism would mean in the post-war sense. So he also went after you know, the American Mercury, which was once a proud magazine under H.L. Mencken, and then had moved completely into the fever swamps of of anti-Semitism by that time. And, and Buckley, in his lifetime, also was able to speak with with that same clarity in the early 1990s. He wrote a long essay that became a short book called In Search of Anti-Semitism, where he looks at three different cases and winds up sort of pushing Patrick Buchanan and Joseph Sobrin, another, another conservative writer who was obsessed with Israel to the point of anti-Semitism, out of the conservative movement. I think there's a rich tradition of, of doing that and really internally policing our own. I think conservatives are up against this canard from the left of conservatives being racist. And in my view, the one of the best ways to combat that is to internally police our own. I believe in big tent conservatism, but as I mentioned in my, my article, the, the flaps need to exist. And somebody like William F. Buckley has was really an inspiration to me, not just in his political philosophies, which I which I almost entirely ascribe to, but in the manner in which he wanted to hone and protect the conservative movement as it grew and it you know as it uh, in the present day, of course, with with Buckley passing on, there remains a need to do that within the conservative movement here. Well, you did a heck of a job. That article you are talking about is one you published in the Denver Post. On July 22, 2020, the title, Conservatives Have Moral Duty to Disown Michelle Malkin and the Alt-Right. 
We'll get to that in a second, but I'm curious as to how you go about policing your fellow Republicans. How do you gather information on the alt-right? How much time does it take? Where do you go? It's a lot of places, and it's a lot of places where you're certainly going to see content that is something you can you will disagree with and, and perhaps vociferously and have a, a pretty pretty terrible reaction to because some of the stuff is is rather awful. But I essentially look through and read alt-right publications like V-Dare, American Renaissance, Occidental Descent, and others to see what the sort of intellectual wing of the alt-right is doing. I use social media like initially Facebook and Twitter. Now those folks have moved on to, to Gab and Parler and other places to sort of follow up the youth wing and the sort of street politics folks are saying about it. So it's a fairly, it's a fairly consistent monitoring. I'm thankful to say that I have uh, built up quite a glossary of, of terminology on the alt-right so, because a lot of what they say is, is coded in code words, but have been able to really recognize a lot of those things. And it's one of the, one of the ways that I've been able to, to keep an eye on uh, this movement that, as I said, is, is consistently trying to gain entry into the Republican mainstream. And I don't much care for that. You certainly put it eloquently in your column for the Denver Post. Are there other places where you set forth your feelings and your findings? So generally, you know, I'm a Republican political operative. I, I work generally behind the scenes, and, and that's in part why my article surprised a lot of folks who have been following Colorado politics, because I'm not exactly known for, for going to the press or going to guest commentary for, for anything. It's not really been my style. I will occasionally write some long-form things on Facebook for my friends to, to see that are geared towards conservatives. I had a, a long form about Charlottesville, the alt-right in general, and folks like Bannon as well. So that's really been my outlet for those sorts of things. But this is certainly a first for me in terms of uh, having a Denver Post commentary article. Wow, that's interesting. Andrew Stretman, your column hit a lot of the right notes with me, but I had not been following all of these characters as closely as you, but I knew Michelle Malkin, and I heard back in November of 2019 about how she aligned herself with the Groypers in a speech at UCLA. I paid attention because the radio station I was working for was bringing her to Colorado as a big celebrated speaker at a big event for the radio station. And it was one of my many problems with what was going on there. What can you tell us about Michelle Malkin? How long has she been on your radar? And are you like me? Was there a time when you really thought, hey, she's pretty smart and talented and maybe a good representative of the Republican Party. Sure. I, I think that I, I certainly, there certainly was a time where I thought that. I mean, growing up in the in the Bush era with conservatism, it would be hard to not find Michelle Malkin. I mean, founding Hot Air Blog and Twitchy and being on the sort of provocateur end of the conservative circuit, whether that was in her books or television or radio appearances, a regular contributor in terms of youth organizations and even big conservative gatherings like CPAC. I think she's certainly been a very prominent character. Where she really started to show up on my radar is at about the same time that some other conservatives did, and that was her early defense of the Groypers after a series of what's called the Groyper Army, going to mainstream conservative events, 
featuring speakers like Representative Crenshaw, Ben Shapiro, Donald Trump Jr., et cetera, and filling up the Q&A with questions about white identity, white majoritarianism, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and things like that. And uh, there, there, there was this initial defense of, of them. And I watched that defense move from being this sort of halfway defense of let's not push out young people from the movement and watch that really change over time. I think the UCLA speech that you mentioned, the CPAC speech that she gave in 2019 were were early indicators where where I really and truly saw that this was a problem was her going to ASPAC, the America First Political Action Conference, in late February as their headline speaker. I think before that, it's possible to look at it as this sort of ignorant association or not wanting to attack other folks from the right and wanting to focus on the left. But what really struck me about the AFPAC speech when I saw it was not only is she standing with those folks and associating with them, it's far more than a guilt by association. It is guilt by linkage. She has adopted their vernacular. She has adopted their ideas. She's called them the light brigade. She calls herself their mommy. This is somebody who isn't just trying to focus on the left or push away these sorts of accusations. She's someone who considers herself an integral part of the movement and a matriarch in, in her in her own way. And that's when I truly started to become concerned because, in my opinion, Michelle Malkin is the most prominent conservative figure to have truly embraced not just the language, but the views of the alt-right. I think we've had some smaller folks, and I think we've had some some other things before that, but in terms of her prominence within the conservative movement and how seriously she's taken by Tea Party conservatives uh, going back in, into that era and onward as this sort of agent provocateur on the right, I found to be very dangerous because if someone like Michelle Malkin is able to seamlessly integrate herself into this wing, it lends a false sense of credibility to a movement that, that has no place in conservatism. Andrew, you referenced the Groypers. It's spelled G-R-O-Y-P-E-R. Where did they come from and who is the leader of the Groypers besides Michelle Malkin? The leader of the Groypers is Nick Fuentes, who's a young fellow, I think he's 21 or 22, who came of, of political age at Charlottesville, uh, marched with white supremacists, nationalists, Nazis, and other folks on the right in 2017 was an early acolyte of Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right and created the sort of popular front for the alt-right in, in most of the 2010s. He splintered off into his sort of his own brand, which is a mixture of, of paleoconservative rhetoric, uh, talking about culture and infusing it with an obsession with race, an obsession with racial demography and, and white majoritarianism in this country, as well as anti-Semitism and shades of Holocaust denial. It's a movement that is, as I mentioned earlier, likes to bomb these Q&A sessions with their own rhetoric as an attempt to recruit on college campuses to find conservatives, young conservatives that maybe don't share all of their views, but can be brought into the fold in order to build this movement. Groyper itself, the etymology is, is pretty pretty murky, as with most things with the alt-right. It, it happens in message boards and shades of irony to where a groiper is basically a, a big Pepe, a Pepe the Frog that looks like Jabba the Hutt. It's a, again, it's one of those weird, murky iterations that really started about last year and has catapulted in prominence really throughout 2019 and, and into 2020. 
I studied up on Nick Fuentes before I interviewed Michelle Malkin, and it sickened me. He's a Jew hater. Is there any doubt about it? Oh, there, there's no doubt in my mind whether that's offensive language used about the Holocaust to Holocaust denial to threatening Ben Shapiro with a switchblade to consistent mockery of Jews, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It, it really does roll the run the whole gamut to where I feel comfortable in saying he is not just a white nationalist, but a rabid anti-Semite. I've heard about V-Dare because in your home city of Colorado Springs, the place you graduated high school, there was a lawsuit brought by V-Dare. I believe Randy Corcoran was the attorney. He sued John Southers in the city of Colorado Springs. I saw where the lawsuit got thrown out. There may be an appeal before the Tenth Circuit. But what do you know about V-Dare and Peter Brimlow, who Michelle Malkin told me, she would always stand by this group and this guy. Who is he? Peter Brimelow is a, is a journalist and author uh, on the right. He was booted from the Wall Street Journal in the 1990s, booted from National Review in the late 90s for basically a racial obsession with, with demography and formed V-Dare. Uh, V-Dare, in my opinion, exists as a sort of wormhole between paleo-libertarian right and the alt-right. It is part of the, the more intellectual wing of the party. It has folks write for it like uh, like Paul Gottfried and Jared Taylor when he's not writing an American Renaissance and, and other folks like that as this sort of part of the old intellectual vanguard. It's also had Michelle Malkin as a columnist for quite some time. And one of the things that I was struck by even after my column and your interview is, is that she went on V-Dare with John Darbyshire and Darbyshire was booted from National Review in the, in the mid-2010s for, for similar reasons as Peter Brimelow. In my opinion, they are part and parcel of the problem with this racist fringe consistently trying to influence gullible conservatives on the right. You also reference her association with a guy named Patrick Casey. Who is that? Sure. And so AFPAC, the American uh, America First Political Action Conference, featured Patrick Casey. Patrick Casey ran, well, was a part of what used to be called Identity Europa, which is a white nationalist organization. It recently rebranded to the American Identity Movement. It is a run-of-the-mill white nationalist organization that goes around on college campuses and puts up vaporwave and all these other sorts of things about white identity and European heritage. They are really part and parcel of, of the alt-right. They believe in maintaining white dominance over society and, frankly, uh, through non-democratic means. And this is somebody that was also present at AFPAC, also spoke there, and someone that Michelle Malkin refused to refused to distance herself from. In fact, in her tweets, explicitly mentions Patrick Casey. I don't know if you watched The Plot Against America on HBO, and it talked about Lindbergh, the America First Party that existed before World War II. They wanted to keep us out of World War II. They thought it was a war being fought for Jewish interests. That was part of their argument. And for Malkin's group and others to take on this name, America First, what did you think about that? You're a Republican. What did you think when that started happening? Sure. I think it's very troublesome because that part of interwar, interwar conservative movement and, and the Republican Party allowed itself, and in, in I think through anti-interventionism, to move into conspiracy about Jewish interest and Jewish power in American society. And I think we see echoes 
with that and groups like the Groypers who believe that the reason that their ideas are not catching fire with every young person is because there is a you know Jewish plot against them to keep young white males down and to prevent them from from understanding and realizing the society that they that they wish to create. And the point of what you wrote about and the point of my interview with Michelle Malkin is to say that we're not talking about these fringe characters, Brimlow, Fuentes, Patrick Casey, people who nobody's really ever heard of, John Derbyshire, but people have heard of Michelle Malkin. And just a couple of weekends ago, she was the keynote speaker at a rally of Back the Blue here in Denver, Colorado. Is that why you felt the need to put pen to paper? It's certainly part of it. I came back from a camping trip that Sunday and scrolling through Twitter and saw that there was a, a large rally and saw that Malkin was present. I was able to watch the, the live stream in which she mentioned Groyper and Clown World and all these other these other bits of vernacular from these folks. And I realized that, as I mentioned before, she's perhaps the, the, the largest and most mainstream conservative figure to adopt these. Uh, it's been something that I've followed for a long time and have whispered to people that is, you know, it's not a good idea. She's gone down this dark road into this fever swamp. The Sunday and, and her presence there was really a sort of moment where I realized that, okay, I need to I need to speak out about this. And, and one of the most important things I, I could say about it is what happened at that rally is, as I mentioned in my article, is unequivocally vile what happened to conservative attendees there. If none of that had happened at this rally, I still would have written my piece. Uh, my piece has nothing to do with the uh, left-wing violence exacted upon those folks. It has everything to do with the fact that Michelle Malkin maintains a level of prominence and platform Colorado that, frankly, with her actions and her words in the last year, she no longer deserves. She was the leader of that rally. I mean, Randy Corcoran put it together. He's the head of the Arapahoe County Tea Party and uh, radio host Patrick Neville, House Minority Leader, was there. Sheriff Steve Reams from Weld County was there. But without a doubt, the most famous person that people would come to hear at an event like that would have been Michelle Malkin. And do you agree with that? I do. And I think that part of the reason why I wrote my piece is is as an, as an educational one. I think, I mentioned before, a lot of alt-right terminology is deliberately esoteric. It exists on the internet with young people. And uh, I think there are a lot of conservatives for whom that sort of language goes completely over their head. And they don't understand the really insidious things that these folks are saying behind it. I think it's very telling that in you know DC or in other places with conservative groups, booting Michelle Malkin, like CPAC or Young America's Foundation, Hillsdale College, et cetera, that hasn't really bled into Colorado. And one of the reasons why I felt it was important to write my piece is because she doesn't mention uh, in her speeches, Ted doesn't really mention those sorts of things here. And I wanted to serve my piece to serve as a warning to conservatives about the kind of rhetoric and views that she's adopted as of late and why I think it's wrong for us to continue to put her in this place of prominence. And you're doing that because you want Republicans to have a future and you want the Republican Party to be something you can be proud of. And you still are going to vote Republican in November. Am I right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I'm a, I'm a conservative foot soldier as well. And 
I want to protect the conservative movement. I don't think that my article was was divisive or attempting to divide conservatives in, in contrast entirely. It was meant to unite conservatives around the views that conservatives actually share, a creed-based conservatism and one that isn't about blood and soil and these sorts of things that the alt-right is obsessed with and attempts to use the fringes and mainstream of the conservative movement as a vehicle for. Andrew, tell me what the reaction has been to your column in the Post. There's been a lot of quiet praise from folks on the conservative right, a lot of Jewish conservatives in particular, who were wise to the Groypers and, and Michelle Malkin's linkage at the hip to them. There were some folks who disagreed with what I did on the right and what I said, but were very respectful and appreciated that I was speaking my mind. There were some folks who were very loud and very angry about what I did. To be frank with you, I've, I've received some some voicemail threats, subtle and explicit, from folks that seem to be on the alt-right. I've lost business. I've lost business contracts as a direct result of, of, of what I wrote. And during a pandemic, of course, that's nothing anybody wants in particular. But for me, it's a stand that I wanted to make. And I think the moment was ripe to do so. And I don't have any regrets about it. There are so many conservative radio shows hosted by Republicans. Who besides me has asked you to be on air to talk about your thought-provoking column? You are the first and only. Did you hear Peter Boyles talk about your column and put you down? I did hear a little bit of that. And I think that one of the things that I fear most within the conservative movement is that every time something like this comes up and there's someone on the conservative right who decides that, as I mentioned before, that the time is right to, to speak with moral clarity about issues that are that are so crucial to the party and crucial to maintaining this, this conservative movement that we have, not just nationally, but here in Colorado and leading it to resurgence. I think there's this there's this inclination to consistently see it as fifth columnist, to to see it as somebody that I milk toast or that I don't share Republican values because I'm attacking another conservative and, and nothing could really be further from the truth. I think these folks don't want to believe that that folks like the alt-right exist. They don't want to believe that there is an undue influence in conservative politics. I think that racism on the right is larger than conservatives would readily admit and, of course, much smaller than liberals wish it to be. That doesn't mean that conservatives don't have the uh, moral duty to police within their own movement and say that some views and some rhetoric is unacceptable. I think one of the parts and reasons for my column is so that there can be no ignorance. I have laid out the facts, and frankly, none of the arguments and folks who have been detractors about my article have touched Nick Fuentes or the things he said or touched the words that Michelle Malkin has used or the rhetoric that she's employed. It's been consistently that I'm smearing other Republicans, smearing good Republicans, but nothing about my content. And I think that's part and parcel of the problem is that conservatives don't want to admit that this, that this exists and see it as a distraction, and they're willing to go after little old me for poking my head out about something I care about. I'm sorry you've lost business over this, but really it's gotten past the point where Michelle Malkin is just dabbling in something or trying to draw young people in. You listened to my interview with her. What did you think after you heard it? I thought that it was very troubling that the moment that you brought up the, the Groypers and those associations, she went immediately to say that you were smearing her and smearing them and painting with a broad brush and, and got very combative rather than, than trying to 
create any kind of distance between herself and Nick Fuentes or any kind of, whether that is an intellectual one, a political one, or a strategic one. She, she certainly did none of those things. And as I said before, this, you know, it's not guilt by association if you are adopting the views and rhetoric. Guilt by association is going to a, a meeting and being a speaker, and there are other speakers who say things you disagree with, and then you're pilloried by that association, like Steve Scalise down in Louisiana. That's guilt by association. This is, uh, this is guilt by linkage. Are Nazis creatures of the political left or the political right? Well, that is a, that is a deep, uh, deep historical and intellectual, uh, intellectual question. I mean, not to go into it too much, but in the 1930s, there are various wings of the National Socialist Movement in Germany. Some of them are left of center, some of them are right of center. Economic agnosticism between communism and capitalism. I think in a post-World War II sense, particularly looking at neo-Nazi movements and things like that, they are a function of, of the racist right. I think the historical background is is much more complex. And if we go back 100 years ago to the streets of Berlin, there were fights between the commies and the Nazis, and we all know that the Nazis prevailed. So wasn't that an indicator? The commies are the people on the left. The Nazis were the people on the right. And didn't they come to power because it was felt that you needed strong men on the right to dominate those leftist hordes who would keep on coming until you put them down and did it severely. Am I right? I agree with a lot of that. What I will say is I, I think what you have in late Weimar are situations where the Kappe Day, the, the Kass Party in Germany, is aligning itself in many instances with the Nazi Party because they're anti-institutional. You have a, a weak government run by the Social Democrats, and the Kappe Day is spending much more of its time going after what they termed as social fascists, than they were the Nazis. One of the tragedies of Weimar is that by the time you get to the early 1930s, a majority of the Reichstag is filled with folks who are anti-institutionalist and anti-democratic. I think, obviously, when the Nazis came to power, there was hell to pay from those folks on the left. But the street politics in Weimar are very fascinating and involve a lot of complexities. I think the, the cafe, one of the cafe day functions and ideas was to allow the Nazi party to grow large enough that there would be a left-wing commensurate uprising on the left. It's a, it's a very fascinating and tragic time in German history. Now you're just showing up, but have you ever studied how the Nazis took over the radio stations in the major cities in Germany? Yeah, I think it's, it's very insidious. I think you have Really, the the Nazi conscription of of the business class and monarchism and the and, and monarchist groups and organizations or or Freikorps type folks, uh, German German war veterans throughout the 20s and, and into the early 30s is very interesting. It was a slow burn of of consolidation of power and a slow burn of of seemingly internally contradictory ideas both economic and, and social, that led to Germany adopting a totalitarian regime. But they could not have done it without the media and film and propaganda, am I right? Yeah, certainly, a, certainly an integral part of that. And I, I don't like to make uh, I don't like to make too many comparisons between Weimar and the United States because they are, are, are radically different. What I will say in terms of of the alt right is that there they do have an outsized influence in terms of right wing media on the fringe, particularly with younger people, because the folks on the alt right are also young and are able to speak in the vernacular of youth 
in a way that ossified older conservatives have really been never been able to to do. And in fact, when you when you listen to Malkin talk about Con Inc. and talk about all these this this large conservative organizations who have all branded her, she is she is echoing that. She is echoing that there is this aged, outmoded conservative movement and the youth of the alt-right need to take their proper place as the youth wing of the right in the United States. And I, I find that to be very dangerous. And that's part of the reason why I do what I do and part of the reason why I wrote the article. What did you make of Tucker Carlson's lead writer being linked with the alt-right and white nationalism? I, I think that's very troubling and goes back to what I've said earlier about these folks who are consistently trying to gain entry Somebody like Tucker's writer, it's somebody who kept their power level hid, somebody who only gave the extent of their ideology in public in a way that was acceptable, or at least edgy, but not over the top. And then what we saw there was a case where their their private conversations were much more honest in terms of the extremity of their ideology. It's hiding your power level, which is an, an alt-right term to basically obfuscate how extreme you are on views of race, of, of sex, of anti-Semitism, what have you. Well, Andrew Strudman, you are so knowledgeable, and I did not know you were an expert in this field. I saw at the end of your column, you're an owner and partner of Saratoga Strategies and a longtime Republican political consultant in Colorado. Then I called you and you reminded me we may have met previously but I brought up Kirk Whitland to you, my former producer inflicted on me by 710 KNUS in Salem. And I wondered if you were familiar with this story. And you said something like, am I familiar? You knew about it before it even hit the press. Tell us what you knew about Kirk Whitland. Sure. So I started getting rumblings about that around the same time as the folks who, who eventually outed him. And, and that was through various various functions on the right and links and things from American sources, which led to Russian sources, which is where he put up a lot of his put up a lot of his posts. And to me, it's really similar to the, the writer for Carlson, where it's somebody hiding their power level, hiding behind the term nationalist hiding behind ideas that are in vogue on the right at this time and using it as as a shield to protect themselves as they build up more trust with more mainstream conservatives and are able to influence them. I think one of the things with the alt-right is they are consistently consistently depressed about the the Republican Party because they're never the Republican Party in their mind is never going to be the sort of race-based haven that they desire unless they are coy and unless they work diligently to gain entry. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very sad thing, but it's something that does unfortunately happen on the right. I saw Woodland's posts about Adolf Hitler being a great guy and how we were on the wrong, parentheses, Jewish side of World War II and that every evil since then is attributable to that sad fact. I was stunned by it. I just thought Whitland was mega maga. And now what should I call him? Is he a neo-Nazi? Is he a white nationalist? How do you label people? Well, I think uh, I, I label things very carefully because I think that there are plenty of times, uh, particularly from the left, where blanket terms like white supremacy or white supremacist have lost some of their their 
etymological underpinnings and their actual reasonings. I think there's a profound difference between white nationalism, white separatism, and white supremacism. All of those things are bad, and more than one thing can be bad at one time, but I do think language is important. With him, I'd consider him to be an, an obvious anti-Semite, and I would feel comfortable given what he has also said, that he is a white nationalist in the American sense of the term. But not a Nazi? I think that, uh, frankly, that's more of an intellectual discussion. Someone doesn't have to be a Nazi to be someone who does not belong in the conservative mainstream or to be given any place of prominence. What I think is being a white nationalist in, in the modern American era it should be enough. And I think that, as I've mentioned, there are, there are tons of folks who've written great things on the right about racism and anti-Semitism on the left. And I don't want anyone to conflate what I've said here or in my articles to suggest that I don't believe that those are serious problems on the left. I'm not a left winger. I'm a conservative foot soldier, have been my entire life. What I want to do is to preserve and protect the conservative movement from the rabid racists and anti-Semites on the fringes. I'm happy if my Democratic friends do the same on the left. My concern is my movement. Right. But I think people on the left should understand that if you associate closely with Louis Farrakhan and you want to be part of the Democrat Party, that is problematic. Isn't that a parallel on the left? It is. And Farrakhan is a, is a morally repugnant person. And I, I don't think that needs any kind of qualification, given what he has said and what he has what he has done in his political life. Well, as I proved last week and as you proved in the Denver Post, I'm not calling for anybody to be canceled. I just want them to be confronted. When these love fests occur between Michelle Malkin and various Denver Trump radio hosts, I want one of them to say, hey, what's up with your association with the Groypers? Did you read Andrew Strutman's good column in the Denver Post? Wouldn't that be the appropriate thing for people to confront her and let's talk about it rather than necessarily try to cancel it? I agree entirely. And, and that was really the true purpose of my piece is to create that conversation to where folks are at the very least a little more circumspect about it are able to ask the questions. And look, I don't, I don't think Michelle Malkin is, is irredeemable in my view. I mean, I think if she distanced herself from these folks, she refrains from using their language. She moves away from the alt-right. I, I don't, I don't believe in left-wing cancel culture and I don't believe in destroying people's lives as we've seen that, you know, happen on Twitter uh, on a seemingly regular occurrence. What I do believe is that when somebody adopts the language and rhetoric of these folks, they need to be held accountable. Well, you are quite a political scientist. I loved your column and I loved our conversation. Till next time, okay? I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Thank you. Gosh, that Andrew Strutman was impressive. I'm from Colorado College and he's from DU and normally there's a rivalry, but I admire the political science professors who put wisdom into that man's head. He's bright and he thinks about these things long and hard. And he took a chance to talk about a racist in our midst, within the midst of the Republican Party. What are they going to do about it? You need to speak truth to power. You need to stand up to racism. And Lord knows we have it coming out of the White House. We have upcoming a Craig's Lawyer's Lounge interview with a professor who's knowledgeable about housing laws and Donald Trump and his efforts to roll it back to the 50s in our suburbs. Donald Trump fails to realize that we live out here. 
we could be happy if he stopped throwing fuel on the fire and if he managed this COVID disaster. Barack Obama spoke beautifully at the funeral of John Lewis. So did the two other former presidents. That was really something for Bill Clinton. He's got to worry about the Jeff Epstein revelations. Ooh, but thank goodness Barack Obama did not go to that island. Barack Obama did pay tribute to his friend John Lewis in a wonderful way. And in the process, touched on Rabbi Heschel and how Martin Luther King and John Lewis took wisdom from the teachings of Rabbi Heschel insofar as Old Testament prophets having considerable relevance today. John was only 20 years old. But he pushed all 20 of those years to the center of the table, betting everything, all of it, that his example could challenge centuries of convention and generations of brutal violence and countless daily indignities suffered by African Americans. Like John the Baptist preparing the way. Like those Old Testament prophets speaking truth to kings. John Lewis did not hesitate and he kept on getting on board buses and sitting at lunch counters, got his mugshot taken again and again, marched again and again on a mission to change America. There were other heroes in that movement. C.T. Vivian, who Susanna Heschel spoke so beautifully about, Joseph Lowry. These were the founding fathers. What a great way to think about it. And decide that it is in our power to remake this country that we love until it more closely aligns with our highest ideals. What a radical idea. What a revolutionary notion. This idea that any of us ordinary people, a young kid from Troy, can stand up to the powers and principalities and say, no, this isn't right, this isn't true, this isn't just. We can do better. On the battlefield of justice, Americans like John, Americans like Reverend Lowry and C.T. Vivian, two other patriots that we lost this year, liberated all of us, the many Americans came to take for granted. America was built by people like them. America was built by John Lewis's. He, as much as anyone in our history, brought this country a little bit closer to our highest ideals. And someday when we do finish that long journey towards freedom, when we do form a more perfect union, whether it's years from now or decades or even if it takes another two centuries, 
John Lewis will be a founding father of that fuller, fairer, better America. John Lewis was the real builder of America, not Donald Trump, not his father, the builder of Fred Trump. He was a bad guy. I've been reading Mary Trump's book. I've been listening to Donald Trump, the divider in chief, who now realizes he's way behind. He's not going to catch up. So what is he going to do? Of course, he's going to cheat to win. You won't know the election result for weeks, months, maybe years after. Maybe you'll never know the election result. And that's what I'm concerned with. It'll be fixed. It'll be rigged. People ought to get smart. We are smart. Those are Putin talking points. Our president talking like Vlad Putin. Here he goes on with his nonsense on Friday. This is going to be the greatest election disaster in history. And by the way, you guys like to talk about Russia and China and other places. They'll be able to forge ballots. They'll forge them. They'll do whatever they have to do. Let's talk about Colorado, where we have a great system. I've voted all sorts of ways through the years. This is the best. You get your ballot at home. I always drop it off. I don't depend on the postal service. But my gosh, now Trump is even messing with that. And thank God for Barack Obama calling out our current divider in chief, speaking bravely at the eulogy of John Lewis, exactly the way the congressman would have wanted it said. Do you know John Lewis? had nothing to do with Donald Trump, did not go to the inauguration. He saw things more clearly than I did back then because he had more experience and wisdom. I won't make that mistake again. Do you know John Lewis, when Louis Farrakhan organized that Million Man March in Washington? He was not a participant. He did not like Louis Farrakhan. He did not like hatred and dividers and Jew haters. John Lewis was a blessing for the Jewish people. He was a blessing for the United States of America. And he was one of the founding fathers of our modern America. And we do need to get to the other side. Barack Obama and his family will be part of it. I hope Donald Trump will be done rather soon leading this country. But the testing of his faith produced perseverance. He knew that the march is not over, that the race is not yet won, that we have not yet reached that blessed destination where we are judged by the content of our character. He knew from his own life that progress is fragile, that we have to be vigilant against the dark occurrence of this country's history, of our own history with their whirlpools of violence and hatred and despair that can always rise again. Bull Connor may be gone, but today we witness with our own eyes police officers kneeling on the necks of black Americans. George Wallace may be gone, but we can witness our federal government sending agents to use tear gas and batons against 
peaceful demonstrators. And how was that not a crime? I heard the AG Barr examined about that at the House Judiciary, and he had no good answers. To me, that was an assault, a constitutional violation by Bill Barr and the President of the United States. When we come back, let's talk about somebody who is a better American. Let's go back to Rabbi Heschel before we talk to a lawyer whose life was so influenced by his association with this civil rights icon and confidant of John Lewis and Martin Luther King. When we come back, we'll talk more about Rabbi Heschel and the incredible history that you may not know about, followed by Craig's Lawyer's Lounge with Professor Steph Krieger. Don't miss it. What a challenging time for every business, especially sales. But you know what? Tried and true sales training can work, especially at Sandler Training. It just so happens that my good buddy, Dan Levitt, runs Sandler Training here in Colorado. He's got tips that normally you would have to pay for. Tip number two, what is it, Dan? Hey, thanks, Craig. The rule for this week is don't spill your candy in the lobby. Now, what does that have to do with sales? We'll spill your candy in the lobby. It's showing up and telling all of our product knowledge, talking about how wonderful you and your company are without any knowledge of what is really important to the prospect. What we should do is find out much more about our prospect by asking good questions and then link your product knowledge, your expertise, your reputation to only what's important to them. Wonderful advice. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. 303-829-2107. Find out more on my website or calling Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Hey folks, I urge you to go to michaelbaileylawllc.com. You will see what a handsome dude Michael Bailey is. Michael Bailey helps people proactively plan for their legal needs, including current needs, and future legal and financial protection. He understands that physical limitations can also prevent good people from equipping themselves with the legal protection they need because leaving the house may not be as easy as it used to be. That's why he calls himself the mobile estate planner, because he will come to you. Give him a call. He's easy to talk to. 720 730-7274, 720-730-7274 for your end of life legal planning. Hire the lawyer that Trish and I hired, Michael Bailey. Find him online at michaelbaileylawllc.com. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. What a blessing to happen on to Professor Stefan Krieger, Hofstra University Law School. He is a scholar about Rabbi Heschel and why not? He knew the man. He followed him and Martin Luther King. This is an incredible segment of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. But let me tell you more about Rabbi Heschel, or more accurately, let me have PBS in a documentary they did several decades ago. Rabbi Heschel died 
in the early 70s. But Bob Abernathy was the host of the PBS special, and it started like this. Coming up, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. and was a longtime activist for civil rights and against war. Remembering rabbi, theologian, and mystic Abraham Joshua Heschel. This weekend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, religious services are planned around the country to remember him and his legacy. Some of them will be in synagogues that are honoring both King and the late Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of King's many courageous supporters. Heschel is widely considered to be one of the greatest American religious figures of the last century, a rabbi, theologian, social activist, and mystic, admired by Christians as well as Jews. And how cool is that, that I now know his daughter and so do you. Heschel was famous not just for civil rights, but he came out early and strongly against the Vietnam War. Pick him up and lay him down right. It was his participation in the civil rights movement that first made Heschel widely known. In a famous photo of the Selma March in 1965, its leaders wearing garlands, Heschel was the white man with the prophet's beard, two to the right of Dr. King. That was the occasion on which Heschel said he felt he was praying with his legs. God is either the father of all men or of no men. And uh, the idea of judging a person in terms of uh, black or brown or white is an eye disease. Heschel also publicly and passionately opposed the war in Vietnam. How can I pray when I have in my conscience the awareness that I am co-responsible for the death of innocent people in Vietnam. In a free society, some are guilty, all are responsible. Wow, what a powerful message there. His way of thinking turned out to be the right way of thinking, and his daughter did not fall far from the tree. Here she is on that special, an expert in anti-Semitism, Nazism. And of course, her father, she issues this caution. Heschel's experience of the Holocaust was one reason for his social activism. He had seen close up what racism and apathy can do and how violence toward human beings often begins with the abuse of language. Hitler, he said, did not come to power with tanks and machine guns. Hitler came to power with words. Bad words, divisive words. General Mad Dog Mattis said that Hitler tried to divide and conquer. And then he wrote in the next paragraph about our president, Donald Trump. This is a scary time and words matter. I hope my words matter. The biographer of Heschel said, He had profound answers when speaking about the Holocaust. Heschel's biographer is Edward Kaplan. There are moments in which he talks about overcoming despair and overcoming gloom. But the response to the catastrophe is not to focus on the catastrophe, but to focus on human possibilities. When you ask Heschel, where was God during the Holocaust? His answer was always, of course, where was man? Boy, that reminds me of one of the favorite expressions I got from my mother, God helps those who help themselves. 
The other thing about Heschel, and now I'm calling him that because his daughter said other people did, he had a sense of childlike curiosity about him. Even though he'd been through so much, he was amazed and he loved the earth, the world, and he wanted everybody to notice the rich bounty of nature. His own sense of radical amazement. See, to be aware of so many different things. Did you notice the trees? Well, Heschel was in love with trees. You're walking in Riverside Park. Don't forget the trees, you know. Don't forget the river. You have to react. Heschel described the spiritual power he felt as the ineffable. Oh, ineffable. He loved that word. And that was his late wife, Mrs. Heschel, Susanna's mother. The word ineffable. I'm going to start using it, and I'm going to read more Heschel books. As for him noticing the trees in the river, before we get to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, we need to have a musical interlude with the troubadour, Dave Gunders, because that is precisely his attitude. I share it a bit, but he's written songs about noticing the trees and the rivers and the earth around you. But first, let me finish up on this PBS special describing Heschel the way Professor Kearney will in a moment. William Berrigan, the famous Catholic priest, he was part of all of this. He hung out with Heschel, and this is the way that was described. Heschel's deep spirituality drew many Christians to him, among them the Catholic priest and anti-Vietnam War activist Daniel Berrigan, who became a friend. I was seeing someone who was immersed totally in his own religious tradition and was at the same time charmingly ecumenical, you know, and open to others. I began to understand that the two went together, that if you were a person of deep faith, you were open to others. Here's what I love about Heschel. He fought for his own people and other people. But anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, he had experienced it. That's why he felt sympathy for what blacks go through in America. And he never stopped fighting for his own people. Heschel fought all anti-Semitism. He campaigned for the rights of Jews in the Soviet Union, and at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, he lobbied hard against church teachings that demeaned Jews or anticipated their conversion. I came out with a very strong rebuke. I'd say I'd rather go to Auschwitz and give up my religion. And that my being Jewish is so sacred to me that I am ready to die for it. Over his lifetime, Heschel published 18 books and more than 100 essays. He was driven to show the relevance of Jewish scripture to modern life. This show dedicated to the memory of Congressman John Lewis and Rabbi Heschel. We will be back, Dave Gunders, talking about planet Earth. And then Craig's Lawyer's Lounge opens up when we will hear from Hofstra University professor Stefan Krieger. Don't miss it. Hello. Hello, this is Dave. Is this my troubadour? Happy Colorado Day. Happy Colorado Day to you, Craig. Yes, this is your troubadour. I've always been in Colorado. When did you get here and why? Wow. 
That could take the whole interview, but I'll I'll try to but make don't it Don't do that. Come on, we got to get, you know, you have a song coming up. Craig, I came to Colorado when I was 17. The reason I say it could take a while is because my father trained in the 10th Mountain Division, the famed 10th Mountain Division of Colorado. And he told me as I was growing up of his Colorado experience, and it was this kind of ingrained in me that I would come out and become a man here in Colorado. That is a beautiful story. So how many songs have you written to honor your adopted state of Colorado? I think I'm about to write one. What's up with that? Isn't Colorado part of your musical repertoire? Well, no, and thank you for bringing that to my attention, Craig, because I no, it's true. I have not written a, a, a song about Colorado, but it, it's something I've thought about. You know, I, I wonder why I haven't written it. It's, I, I was thinking about it. Maybe it's because I'm so immersed in Colorado. It's kind of like you write a song about about, you know, the air you breathe or the, or the you know, the, the water that you swim in, or it's just part of my life. And so maybe being so immersed in it, I was wow. never in, in a position to look at it. You are getting mystical, Troubadour, you are getting mystical on me, but give your bona fides. You have climbed how many 14ers here in Colorado? I'm guessing 16. Okay, I'm guessing so you do not have a Colorado song, so I have to come up with something. And Colorado is part of planet Earth. Have you written a song about the Earth by chance? I have written a song about the Earth, and it's called Earth. Tell us about it right before we hear it. Well, Earth is a, is a song about how people have become disconnected from, from our roots, our nature. And, and how we suffer from it as well as our, our mother nature, that it's something to, to think about every day and to, to be more, more connected to, to our, our roots, our, our natural, the fountain of our, of our being. Of our being, yes. Yes. Let me finish that sentence for you. And by the way, acknowledge that during our many travels, walks through nature. I'm the guy pointing out the river, the tree, the bird. I'm the guy pointing it out to you. Dave, see the forest for the trees. Craig, and, I, and that I will just briefly mention the, uh, the story of our first really connection, which was shortly after we had my family and, and I moved in uh, near, near your, you know, as neighbors. You came over uh, not to really do anything other than to drag me out of my house so that I could look at the, at the full moon rising. And I thought that was really cool. I think we have one coming up on Colorado Day. Listen to this beautiful song, Earth, by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. of the earth what it's about got to put back when you take some out but nobody's thinking the moon climbs high planets go around they travel the sky while we're sitting here housebound nobody's watching Nobody's watching Earth 
Wow, Dave, that was a great song. Congratulations. Tell us about the music behind it. Well, the music, I, I don't really know what there is to say. The music is just... I heard some piano. That's not normal yes. for you. Oh, okay, the actual music. Well, yeah, so yes. the piano. Yeah, my, my friend Dar- Mark DeVere. I'm fortunate enough to have good friends who help me with, my, with, with these projects, and he played, he played the piano on that song. I loved it. Will you tell them that I loved it? My audience loves it? I will certainly do it. Could you tell us this? Earth, the subject of your song, we have some issues. Are we going to be okay? I believe we're going to be okay. That's my troubadour. I like your optimism. (laughs) That's just my native optimism talking. That's that full moon rising. Anyway, happy Colorado Day, troubadour. Thanks for Earth. Thanks, Craig. I'll be looking forward to to listening to your show this Saturday. Everybody does. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel. It's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal, Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Puts 303-829-2107. Sandler Training, it could really help you. Thank you, Danny Levitt. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What an honor to welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Professor Steph Krieger. Professor Krieger, welcome. First, I have to make sure you are a lawyer. When did you become a lawyer and how did you go about it? I'm a lawyer since 1975. I went to the University of Chicago for college. I then took four years off and was with an alternative Jewish community in Boston that was inspired by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And then for two years, I was a children's librarian in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and decided after some real problems with my landlord 
that I wanted to go to law school so that I could help folks, especially poor folks, that had problems with substandard housing. Interesting stuff. We're talking with Professor Krieger, Steph Krieger, from Hofstra University Law School. Are you talking to us from the Upper West Side of New York? Yes, I am. That's where I live. I have not been to Hofstra since March the 16th because of COVID. What classes do you teach, Professor, and how many students are in an average class? In the spring, I was teaching a class in evidence, and there were 65 students in the class. I teach evidence differently from, I think, most evidence teachers. What I do is I give them problems that they have to prepare arguments either for or in opposition to an objection or to a motion. And then I give them a horn book, a treatise on the law, and they have to prepare their arguments. And then I ask them to stand up in class in front of 65 other students and to argue. And I'm the judge. And for about seven to eight minutes, we have an argument as if it's in court. And then I critique their performance in terms of style. And then we talk about the rules that are involved. How fun. Does the student have any idea that they're going to be called upon? No. I mean, in the evaluations, they always say, we should know that we're going to be called. We should be told that we'll assign a certain case. It's totally cold call. And I, I would never change it because it, it, every day they come in there like any lawyer, you know what it's like going to court. You have butterflies in your stomach. I mean, here I am. I've been practicing since 1975. I'm scared when I go into a courtroom. I want them to be. I want them to feel that energy when they have to get up in front of the other students and to argue. Uh, They love it. They really do. After the call on once, the first time, it's dreadful for them. They are so scared. And then they want to be called on over and over again. And I had to adapt that mode to Zoom. And I did. And I think one of the reasons why I think it was fairly successful is that I had this relationship with the class beforehand. I really get to know who the students are. I write little notes on cards about how they should improve their arguments that they read too much, that they, uh, uh, there were too many uh, uhs, that they didn't have eye contact. I mean, some people would say that's not what law is about, but to me, style and substance in some ways combined. I was going to reminisce about my own evidence class at CU Boulder. I love that class. It's one of the reasons I became a prosecutor. And we had the advantage here in Colorado that it was the first adaptation of uh, the Colorado Rules of Evidence back in 1980. So when I came out in 1981, we knew the rules and the veteran lawyers were relying on the common law, much to their detriment. Uh, Are the Colorado rules similar to the federal rules? Almost exactly. Yeah, that's in a lot of jurisdictions. New York is still common law. That's fascinating. Yeah, they can't get the lawyers to agree to a code. What Hostas decided, and I think a lot of 
or what you would call second-tier law schools have decided, is to have the first year be in person. And so at Hofstra, all first-year classes are in person. The There will be social distancing in every classroom. Everyone is required to wear a mask. It's been added to our academic code that you have to wear a mask. And if you cannot attend class, there have been technological arrangements so that you can participate from home. Everybody's a TV star now, right? You have to get used to having a camera in your face. Speaking of TV stars, Donald Trump, you've been in New York since 1992. Did you take your measure of the man before he ran for president? Yeah, I always thought he was a clown, that he was nothing but a TV star, and he's lived up to that as president. I noticed, Professor Krieger, that you have a special expertise in housing law. Uh, Donald Trump got in trouble with the Nixon administration. Imagine that. The Nixon administration clamped down on him and his father for marking C on the applications of people of color who wanted to rent a Trump apartment. What do you know about that? And tell us about the history of Donald Trump and fair housing in America. I really can't tell much except the story that you just told. But what I can say, and I, the tweet that he sent out this week about how he's protecting the suburban style dream just reflects the basic racism of the man. And it shows so much about him. I mean, I, I spent 10 years representing a group of nine Latino tenants in a building in the village of Farmingdale, attacking a redevelopment plan in Farmingdale that was destroying housing. And we brought it under the Fair Housing Act. And Farmingdale was kind of a typical suburban community on Long Island. It's not an exurb, it's, it's, it's a suburb. And what this case, I think, it's a wonderful example of how Trump is just so wrong about this suburban style dream. In this case, Farmingdale is predominantly upper middle class white folk. And that when Latinos began to move there as immigrants in the late 1990s, there was a lot of pushback. And the blog postings in the community at that time were as bigoted as could be. One of the Latino supporters that we had for the tenants in the building, she was at a board of trustees meeting just sitting there. And a woman who she didn't know at all, they were talking about the Latino community growing in the community. And this white woman turned around and looked at this advocate who was Latina and said, you people should have your tubes tied. Mm. Um, that was a kind of attitude in the community. And for that reason, the community, the, the village, decided to redevelop the building where our clients lived, which was predominantly Latino, and to basically destroy that building and the area around it 
which was called Little Latin America. And I think the village thought, this was back in 2005, 2006, that we would just disappear. But the Hofstra Law Clinic, my students and I, we kept fighting for all those years. And during those years, there was a transition in the village. And the new mayor in the village, Ralph Ekstrand, and the new village administrator, Brian Hardy, uh, began to think, gee, this is, there's something about diversity in this village, which is really great. And they agreed to settle the case. Our clients got a very good compensation, a great damages award, and the village committed itself to building housing to replace the housing that had been lost with this luxury development. And they are in the process now of building, of of supporting the building by developers of housing for low-income folk in the village. What the story, I think, reflects is that, yeah, there are still folks that have the Trump suburban-style dream, but that it's changing. My clients look at Farmingdale as their home. And the people in Farmingdale now, as reflected in the mayor and Mr. Hardy, not everybody, but there's a a good core now, see that there's something about a suburb that is diverse that is very positive. Actually, the press conference that we had when we settled the case, after the mayor spoke, my clients were all standing there, and he said, Welcome back to the village of Farmingdale. We have this in a, in a tape. And it was really a powerful moment. And then he went and he shook the hands of all these people. It's not Trump's 1950s leave it to beaver kind of view of the suburbs. Things are changing. And it's not just in Farmingdale, but throughout Long Island. There is a large immigrant population. There is a large black population. And the communities are seeing the strength of having this kind of diversity. Something Donald J. Trump could never recognize. His tweet from the other day, I am happy to inform all of the people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood, dot, dot, dot. Wow. That he would say that. I mean, it is pure racism, but it also is a... It's his own myth about what the suburbs are. It, it's a total lack of knowledge. You are slightly older than me, Professor Krieger, so maybe you have much more vivid memories of Martin Luther King and Rabbi Heschel. Tell us about that. This is just a very personal story. Rabbi Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr. and William Sloan Coffin, who was a famous Protestant minister, brought my wife and I together. And this is how it happened. Back in 19, February 4th, 1968, my wife and I both went to an anti-war demonstration from Chicago to Washington. And we didn't know each other. Mary went to Mundelein College. I was going to the University of Chicago. And we got on the bus and we sat next to each other. 
And I was at that time a draft resistor. I was going to go to prison for five years. And so we talked a lot about my draft resistance and about what it meant to be a progressive who was going to take a stand with lots of risk against the government. And we get to Washington, and the demonstration was sponsored by clergy and laymen against the war in Vietnam. Back in those days, it was gendered, clergy and laymen against the war in Vietnam. And the three prominent speakers at that protest at the rally were Martin Luther King Jr., Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and William Sloan Coffin. And what I remember vividly about the second day of that rally was that we went to Arlington Cemetery. And Arlington Cemetery has a rule that if there are any protests there, there can be no speaking. It has to be total silence. And so we stood there. There were probably about two or three hundred of us. And we were in total silence. Rabbi Heschel was there with another rabbi who was holding a Torah. And we stood there for maybe a half an hour. And at the end of that half an hour, Rabbi Heschel spoke. And his words were, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Wow. You think back. Selma had already occurred. We're, of course, remembering the late, great John Lewis this week, he was in that front line marching with Martin Luther King over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. But right there, just one person away from Martin Luther King, was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. What do you remember about Selma, and were you inspired by the rabbi then? I was very inspired by him. And I think what inspired me back with Selma and with his work his protest against the war in Vietnam, was that he had this way of being able to combine traditional Jewish thought with protest and with progressive protest against war and against injustice. I mean, there's a lot of, you read a lot about this, that he talked about praying with your feet, which is right, but he wasn't just a talker. He was really a uh, you know, he didn't just come up with these wonderful turns of phrases. He really put himself on the line. And it's funny, it's kind of like King in that, in, in memory, everybody supported King back in the 1960s. That's a bunch of hogwash. They didn't. He was considered to be a communist then. J. Edgar Hoover was sending his henchmen against him. He was not beloved by a lot of the country. And Abraham Joshua Heschel now, who is looked upon by uh, the Jewish community as this exemplar of what it meant to be a, a prophetic Jew, back then, it was really quite controversial. There were people, Susanna may, be able, may have been able to talk about this, uh, at the Jewish Theological Seminary where he taught, who were not at all happy with what he did. The chancellor of the seminary, I have heard, had told students not to participate in certain protests. So he was really uh, putting himself on the line, but he was putting himself on the line in a very, to me, a very traditional way. And that really inspired me. 
I mean, the reason I became a draft resistor in many ways was because of people like Rabbi Heschel, people like my rabbi who was taught by Heschel, Rabbi Max Tickton, may rest in peace. Why don't you just have bone spurs? You could have gotten out the war that way. <laughs> Plenty of my friends tried to get out that way. And I no, to me, the important thing, and, and I think Heschel in many ways was a model for me on that, was that I needed, it was very important for me to be able to confront the United States government, to be able to say, okay, I'm willing to go to jail for five years because you could give me a student deferment to get me out, but that means that because I got out with a student deferment that some black kid in Chicago or some brown kid in Chicago would have to go in my stead, and I wasn't going to do that. And so I was going to say no. The decisions made by you and Rabbi Heschel have stood the test of time. I think it's pretty well understood in American history that the Vietnam War was a tragic undertaking. Further, you look back on Selma, and there really was only one right side in that debate, and it wasn't Bull Connor. Talk about that. Talk about racism then, racism now, and what you see for racism in the future. I think that racism was rampant then, and to me, the one of the most courageous people, and I, back then I never would have said this, was Lyndon Johnson. That he, that he was able to push for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that he was able to get the Fair Housing Act passed in 1968, that took a lot of courage. That he, he did respond. There was racism galore. But I, I still remember the afternoon of the March on Washington and the way that every television network showed it. And that had an effect. And I think that what we thought back then was that things were going to change because of the moral voice of someone like King. There were a lot of people that were against him back then, but that there was this strain in American, the American population that was willing to say, let's go ahead, let's, let's write what had occurred. And then in the 1970s, with the Southern strategy of, of Richard Nixon and other Republicans, everything fell up, began to fall apart. I, I have to say that, like a lot of people, I think on election night in 2008, we really thought the country had turned, turned a corner, that it had returned to, with Barack Obama, a different mindset. And unfortunately, and I think there are a lot of reasons for it, that the toxic, the original sin of America, race, just kept popping up. And that's resulted in Donald Trump and a last gasp. I'm hoping it's last gasp. I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old. I look at their peers I'm hoping that there's less racism there than amongst baby boomers, but you'd be in a better position to know you're a professor at Hofstra. What about the next generation? Are they better or worse? 
I think they're better. I think we see it on the street. I could watch Rabbi Heschel on YouTube, but you had the experience of hearing him in person. What was that like? I Taylor Branch, in his research of Martin Luther King Jr., says that once when they were in a protest, that a black woman looking on the protest and seeing King and Heschel march together said, it was like seeing King and God march together. He was, he was, uh, you know, I think God's a bit overstated. He, to hear him speak and that Carl Stern Eternal Light program is really powerful. It's that here's a man, he wasn't talking politics. What he was talking was a sense of justice that is just infused to our text. Now, I am the first one to say there is plenty in Jewish texts that turn my stomach. You can just pick up the book of Numbers, and it's there's a lot of really gory stuff. But the line in, in Deuteronomy of the importance of protecting the stranger, that is when I heard Heschel speak, that's what I hear. And it's, so it's not somebody who's talking about this for some sort of political gain, but it's somebody who's channeling our tradition, a tradition that's been around for a long, long time, and saying that's what it's about. And that that, to hell with whether you're a Democrat, Republican, that's what God commands of us. My last question for you. If Rabbi Heschel was alive today, what would he say about President Donald Trump? He would say that he's the antithesis of a just person, that he is someone who stands for the idolatry that our tradition has tried to destroy from Abraham crashing his father's idols to this very moment, that the idolatry, uh, the, the love of money and of self that Donald Trump is about is the antithesis of what our tradition requires. Well put, Professor Krieger. Thank you very much for visiting Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I hope we can stay in touch. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the time. You are very welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Hey folks, I urge you to go to michaelbaileylawllc.com. You will see what a handsome dude Michael Bailey is. Michael Bailey helps people proactively plan for their legal needs, including current needs and future legal and financial protection. He understands that physical limitations can also prevent good people from equipping themselves with the legal protection they need because leaving the house may not be as easy as it used to be. 
That's why he calls himself the mobile estate planner, because he will come to you. Give him a call. He's easy to talk to. 720-730-7274, 720-730-7274 for your end of life legal planning. Hire the lawyer that Trish and I hired, Michael Bailey. Find him online at michaelbaileylawllc.com. Dan Lovett, Dan Lovett, I think I know you from somewhere. How do we know each other? Yeah, let me think, Craig. I think we started doing things together, gosh, it was many years ago. I think I was about 16 years old. We went to high school together, a lot of basketball, and just, you know, we we know each other pretty well. I know, we are the best of friends. And it dates so far back to the day of pinball machines. Remember that? How come you make fun of me and the event that stunted my growth and held me back? Tell everybody about it from your perspective. Well, I think you were about, I think there were three of us there and we were playing a pretty competitive game. You were getting really close to taking the lead and you know, you did a little too much wiggling of the machine. It tilted. And right before you got above the person who was in the lead, and you just jumped up in the air, and the only problem was the ceiling above you was only six and and three quarters feet tall, and you went about eight or ten inches too far and hit your head, and it really, it really banged your head. I think it made a big difference in your world. It has. It's a bad experience. ABC Bowling Alley, there on Colorado Boulevard. You remember it well. They had a pinball area with a low roof. And I never jumped that high again. I couldn't because it really set me back. I had to overcome it. But you were a witness. I got knocked to the ground with a serious concussion. And you and our other friend were laughing when I came to. Why? Oh, man, it was so funny. I think it was the farthest you'd ever jumped. It was about six or eight inches, and we could not stop laughing. You were so close to taking the lead, but you just didn't make it. It's basically what they call an untimely tilt. Right. But you have to move the machine around a little to be competitive. Am I right? You have to get a feel for the machine. You're right. I thought I had that feel. I was stunned when it went on tilt. I couldn't believe it. It still makes me laugh today, Craig. Here's part of my suspicion, Danny, that you might have shook the machine from the side because I still don't think I did anything to tilt that machine. Is that a possibility? Oh, if if it is, it's a very small possibility. That's my old pal. Dan Lovett. He loves my podcast. I hope you do too. I'm sure you will love working with Dan Lovett. What does he do? I'm glad you asked. Sandler Training. Dan has been such a successful salesperson through the years. Now he's teaching other people how to do it. At Sandler Training, a world-recognized organization for salespeople. Do you want to grow your sales? Do you have a sales team that is underperforming? Call my pal, Dan Levitt. Tell him Craig sent you. The number to call, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. 
you can email Dan Levitt directly at dan.levitt at sandler.com. Check them out. Sandler Training, it can make a world of difference for you and your sales team. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's special Colorado Day Civil Rights Show. Thanks to my guest, Professor Stephen Krieger, Susanna Heschel, Dave Gunders, my troubadour, and of course, Andrew Strutman. We are on the right side. Michelle Malkin is in the wrong. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. Craig Silverman.